0: Hello friends, let me take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Let me talk to you a little bit about searching for happiness or trying to achieve goals and oftentimes life and circumstances and other reasons get in the way. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with your therapist within 48 hours. And it's not a crisis hotline, okay? And it's not self-help. It's actual professional counseling, but it's done securely online. You have access to BetterHelp's network of over 20,000 counselors with a wide variety of expertise and training. And this is also about accessibility, if you don't have a counselor in your area to see in person then this could be a great solution for you so this service is available for clients worldwide and you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor so again accessibility you'll get timely and thoughtful responses plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as in traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so, and they make it easy and free if you want to change counselors if necessary. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com. That's Better h-e-l-p.com slash and join the over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced mental health professionals. And there's a special offer for my Psychology Concepts Explained listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash You can see the link in the show notes. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. Hello everybody, this is Dr. Jack Chuang and welcome to another podcast related to psychology. And today's long-form lecture is related to the chapter normally found in an Intro to Psych textbook or course that is called Lifespan Development. Now, I like the fact that this course, whether you're taking a lifespan course or taking this, reading this chapter, covering this chapter in your course, that I like the fact that this term lifespan is used because this is also representing the field of developmental psychology. And developmental psychology oftentimes gets min- misunderstood for being child psychology. Okay, So child psychology is very limited in terms of the age range of what the researchers are looking at. But lifespan, as you can see, covers the entire lifespan. And by the way, I'm recording today's episode from my mobile psychology concepts explained studio, which is our class B camper van parked outside uh, in the family's uh, extended family dri- driveway. That's the only quiet place, solitary place where I can think and to do a lecture like this. And thanks to the small dog next door, um, you can tell that I'm not alone. <laughs> okay, all right. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, so I'm going to cover some of the major concepts in a lifespan chapter. Now, of course, this is never any of these lectures are not going to be uh, comprehensive. Your course may focus on different subjects, uh, so there may be some subjects I might neglect, but. It, Even for my own students, I'm not covering every single subject that you should be reading. But I'm covering some of the big ones, okay? And think about lifespan as how we change over time, okay? From conception, our genetics, all the way through death, and our rituals regarding grieving. That's what lifespan is about, and every issue up until then. So it focuses on our biological changes, As well as our mental or cognitive changes where when do we peak when do we start to decline Uh, what are some aspects about our cognition that changes over time as well as our psychosocial development right so psychosocial has to do with uh, our connections with others right in terms of how they affect our well-being yeah I'm gonna have to do something about that little dog no I'm not advocating violence okay Um, but I might have to close the window here or there. It's already humid as it is. Okay, so what is lifespan development? And if you're listening to this on the audio only, um, I'm using the OpenStax.org psychology second edition PowerPoint slide to guide through this uh, conversation. So I'll try to be as thorough as possible for you who are only listening. Well, as I mentioned just earlier, developmental psychologists typically... And you'll see this in a typical lifespan psychology textbook. And the ones that I use by Kathleen Berger also do this is that our lifespan has three different domains or or areas of focus. There's physical development, of course, that means changes in the body, the brain, our motor skills. And whenever you see the term motor skills, it refers to our physical movement. Okay? And anything related to our health and wellness, like our weight. changes in the blood, uh, our cholesterol level, obesity. That's all part of physical development. Cognitive development is another category where it focuses on uh, how we make sense of the world. uh, How do we solve problems? Language development. Reasoning, creativity, how we learn. Then the third category is psychosocial development. And that has to do with Our social relationships our personality how we express our emotions okay so it's a combination of the word psychology and our social connections and the normative approach and this is this has to be talked about in the field of psychology I think a lot of people hear the word normal and they're wondering well does that mean there is such a thing as normal versus abnormal like say behavior or development well think of here normal as a statistical word normative right so the normative approach has to do with data that's gathered with large numbers of children okay or people in general of any age group where uh, statistically when do things happen when are these developmental mild milestones okay for example just as an example when does a baby start to crawl walk or start to speak in sentences when they start puberty now you know that's going to vary right but there tends to be an average range where the majority of infants or children start to develop these skills or behaviors at a certain time right and that's so think of that as the word normative so some people may develop early you may know people in your family that have started to speak or very talkative at a very early age some waited Until their second year before they started talking and started worrying their parents as to whether their child has a problem, right? And so that's what normal means, is that there's a range in which most people, whatever age group you're looking at, start to have or exhibit certain behaviors or signs of something, okay? Now, some of these changes are universal, like hitting puberty, right? Biological milestones. Now universal means that it happens to all of us, but it doesn't happen to all of us at the same time. And they may vary across cultures, right? Okay. Now our development can be seen as either uh, some things can be seen as continuous, right? For example, our height and weight is continuous, that is, there's a specific line. In other words, I cannot jump from being five feet tall to five foot eight. Right? There's a gradual growth there. Even if someone has a fast growth spurt over a summer, they're still going from five foot to five foot, point zero zero one zero zero two. you know what I mean? So they're gaining weight, gaining height in that manner. That's called continuous. And a lot of these theories that we'll talk about, these so-called stage theories, are what we call discontinuous development. That there are things that occur in our lifetime that occur in unique stages now whether that's at a specific age or a specific time for each of us that would be considered discontinuous development uh, such as when we start walking right um, we go from crawling to walking and that just sort of suddenly happens one day in a sense okay and uh, or the ability to speak certain words right that is sort of pops out and happens and it may happen at different times for each of us but uh, that's what's an example of discontinuous development all right now when we talk about these theories are they universal does it apply to every single person now there's a lot of evidence that many of the things we'll talk about today do uh, exhibit a single course of development okay uh, one course in development, meaning that everyone goes through a similar sequence. Uh, sometimes, though, specific cultural differences in say upbringing, for example, or childcare practices may accelerate or inhibit some of those milestones. So those milestones will still be there, but sometimes they may be delayed or just depending on that particular, culture right so most industrialized cultures you can see very similar patterns but then if you examine an isolated culture perhaps with less technology um, then perhaps their language development might be slightly different right not good or bad but it just may be slower delayed compared to say an industrialized nation uh, where we hit the kids with a lot of books early on for example okay uh, but many of the things that we do in life are fairly Consistent and universal. All right. Now, a constant theme or, or a major theme in developmental psychology or lifespan is the idea of nature versus nurture, right? And in a way, the V, the versus, is kind of misleading. It makes it sound like it's either or, right? You know, it's kind of like boxing, you know, Ali versus Frazier. Oh man, I'm showing my age. Okay, I can use other examples. But nature refers to what we've inherited genetically. Okay. Um, sometimes, when it comes to athletes, uh, men or women, professional or amateur, sometimes I notice that, as observers of these professional sports, and you may hear this in people who are uh, commentating on sports, is that when they see an athlete that's superior to others, sometimes they overemphasize their biology right that they're gifted have you ever heard that they're a gifted athlete Um, now that is probably partially true that you've seen many I'm old enough now to see the sons of professional athletes that I admired now are in professional sports and I'm thinking Wow already their son is playing football or basketball I used to watch their father play right And so it's easy to say, wow, that's just, of course, you know, Barry Bonds is the son of Bobby Bonds. Of course he would be a great athlete. He's probably been swinging a baseball bat, throwing a ball since they were an infant. Well, that's the interesting thing, right? I mean, of course they inherit a certain set of genetics, but a lot of people inherit genetics where perhaps it gives them a certain height advantage or weight advantage, right, or speed advantage, but not, not, actually would say a small minority of them make it to a very elite level of sport. So why is that? Well, we cannot ignore nurture, right? That's the environment in the culture that someone is brought up in. So sometimes to me, depending on the subject, it's not very fruitful or useful to talk on nature versus nurture, but nature and nurture, right? Uh we could compare to say which component was maybe more powerful powerful than the other, but it's kind of hard to ignore. It's hard to say something was 100% nature. A lot of our diseases that we have, we may have... That's why we fill out medical forms about our medical history, is that your physician wants to know, well, do you have any inherited risks? That's the nature component, right? Or did you inherit this gene uh Last year, I had some bad headaches. I went to see a neurologist. Right? He said, "Oh, let's just run some blood tests." Well, what he did not tell me was that the blood test was going to be five hundred dollars. Okay, that's that's another story. So I'm not going back to him. Should have told me in advance. I should have asked. That's my responsibility. I figured, well, I've met my insurance deductible, so I should be only paying fifteen percent of whatever some of these tests were elective so my insurance did not cover them such as the Alzheimer's gene test don't you think a doctor should tell you that you know before revealing the results that you're going to be tested over this it might be something you want to think about my grandmother on my father's side passed away of Alzheimer's disease right my father is 81 and a half now he's always worried about whether he's inherited that from his mother and I have to worry about that whether I'm inherited and then all of a sudden, bam, oh, you, you, you tested negative for the Alzheimer's gene, right? Which was good news, but is that a guarantee that I won't suffer from dementia 30 years from now? That's not a guarantee, right? It just means that you have a higher probability if you carry a certain gene. But oftentimes with our genes, we require an environmental trigger, right? And an experience, something that we're exposed to. Sometimes it's a trauma right that makes us more likely to become addicted right so we might inherit the gene that makes us more likely to be addicted to a certain chemical but if we manage our stress levels and use proper coping mechanisms that gene may not ever be activated you see so it's it's usually an interaction okay of them Uh, but In order to understand this, researchers often use, and and some universities are famous for this, I believe the University of Minnesota is famous for doing their twin studies where they compare adults who were adopted as children or twins who were raised apart, right? And do a bunch of measurements and personality tests to see what kinds of things are they similar. If two people were raised in different environments and different socioeconomic statuses, one person, let's say one of the twins was uh, adopted by a wealthy family one was adopted by a relatively poor family with a different diet how did they end up 40 years from that point right and so you can make a determination that well if they chose similar careers if they had similar education they're exactly the same height and weight then you could say that wow you know their genetics that, that there must be a really large genetic component to this oh, my coffee's cold now all right let's move on okay so in this segment we're going to talk about theories of development and when you take a lifespan course what's interesting about that is from chapter 1 through chapter 25 or however many chapters you have in that book you will cover a little bit of these theories along the way because these theories oftentimes cover the entire lifespan so we're gonna talk about Sigmund Freud's very controversial psychosexual theory of development We'll talk about Eric Erickson's psychosocial theory of development, which some might think of as an improvement over Freud, even though they're both psychoanalysts. Um, Jean Piaget's cognitive theory of development, which is also one of the most famous uh, in a lifespan course. So you can't go through a lifespan course or chapter without learning about Piaget. That's supposed to be an asterisk. Okay, so then we finish up with uh, Kohlberg's theory of moral development now this is pretty interesting too and try to apply these to yourself in a sense that well how do you see yourself can you relate your own to your own life with regards to these particular theories Now let's start with freud and i could really spend 30 minutes on each of these so i'm gonna try to be relatively brief if possible now one of the main takeaways of sigmund freud's theories and remember he's an austrian physician psychiatrist okay And one of the most influential because a lot of his ideas still persist in our current culture. But the downside is, I'm I'm giving you a nutshell explanation about Freud, is that a lot of his ideas, because of the concepts the way they are, they're very difficult to prove or to study scientifically. Okay, if you believe that our childhood experiences somehow have an influence... On us as adults, they shape our personalities and behaviors, then you're kind of in line with Freud. And a lot of his ideas persist because they make common sense, right? Um, even though they're very difficult to say, prove or disprove. Development is discontinuous, means that there's particular stages, right? And these stages, he calls them the psychosexual stages. And what that really means is that it doesn't really mean that a two- year old has sexual urges the same way an adult has, of course. But what you can think about is that uh, ever since we were born, we have different uh, we, we're always trying to seek pleasure of some kind, okay? So I know it's difficult to sort of conceptualize because the title of his theory is Psychosexual. But think of it as even children have a pleasure zone. They do something that makes them feel good, to satisfy a certain urge, okay? And, of course, after puberty, that urge becomes more of a sexual urge that we think of that adults have, okay? So I know you can be thrown off. It's easy to be thrown off of Freud's ideas when you think about that he's talking about sexuality, then he's talking about children. It's like, ah, you know, it makes you uncomfortable. But you don't have to conceptualize it that way. Just think of it as that... uh, Each person at a given age has erogenous zones, okay, and there are five of these stages, and these will sound familiar, and I I encourage you to watch actually the old sitcom, uh, uh, what's the name of it, dang it, it'll come to me, Uh, let me think, what was that show? Man, it was around right the tip of my tongue. Okay, I'm going to have to come back to that. Up. All right, so there are f- five stages here. And the first stage is the oral stage. And this is by age, okay? So during infancy when we're born, and, and the, the erogenous zone, where we seek pleasure is our mouth, right? And think about it. Through, through Freud, Freud's observation, what do newborns do? They feed. That's pretty much what they do. I mean, yeah, they poop, okay, but the primary goal is to feed, Right. So if they're not feeding, they're sucking on stuff, right? They, you know, give them a pacifier, they're crying, you know, that kind of thing. And so it kind of makes sense that they're satisfying themselves orally. Now, one of the themes of this theory is like, well, how does this relate to us as adults? Is that even though you may not have a conscious memory of being a baby and, and being fed and all that, The idea is that, remember, Freud believes that we have an unconscious. So these early life experiences are buried in our unconscious level, right, that we don't have easy access to. And if we do not go through a certain stage with proper parenting and nurturing, then we could have a conflict that he calls a fixation, okay? And a fixation is going to reveal itself once we're an adult, you know, through certain problems, let's say like alcoholism, right? If you think about it, that's an addiction, uh, a hand-to-mouth addiction, right? Um, someone who's a compulsive eater, that's a hand-to-mouth addiction. They're medicated someone is medicating themselves through alcohol, through food, right? So if Freud would observe this patient today, they would say that, wow, you have an oral fixation Right? So according to his theory, something must have happened to you early on where your oral urges were not satisfied. Maybe you were not given enough food at that age, enough nurturing at that age. Okay, So you're craving this, even as an adult, at some unconscious level. And to soothe yourself, right? you use alcohol. To soothe that pain, you use food. So that would be considered an oral fixation. How do you get over this fixation? Well, you go through psychoanalysis, right? That's the famous uh, Freud uh, form, Freud's form of therapy where someone's lying on the couch, trying to relax their mind, dig into their childhood experiences, right? Maybe not literally go to feeding, right, But it's try to undo some of the damages of the past. Then if you think about it, um, a couple years later, a few years later, the anus, right? Now we have, now that's the, now this might sound strange. How is that possibly an erogenous zone, right? No, no, we're not talking about anal sex and, you know, in in that way. But we're talking about pooping, right? Uh, We're talking about, at that age, we're so focused on doing something correctly. And that is pooping appropriately. Potty training, okay? Potty training. And if you think about it in that respect, say, like, oh, that makes sense. Now we're trying to control how we poop. And if we poop well, we get a lot of rewards from our parents, right? You know, because they're extremely happy that they don't have to wipe your butt anymore and, give, and change diapers, right? So that's a thrilling moment for parents to graduate a, a toddler from changing their diaper a few times a day to you saying, I have to go potty, and you go potty, right, and learn how to flush, and eventually learn how to wipe properly, you know, front to back, you know, all that kind of stuff, <laughs> and, and, and there you go, okay? And so you can see how potty training can go wrong, right? So if potty training goes wrong, then someone can have an anal fixation. Now, in our American culture, sometimes people refer to people as anal like that's part of their personality some people may say i am so anal about this about that now you may be wondering especially if english is your second language or if you're new to american culture why in the world are people using this word anal that is pretty disgusting i can understand oral fixation but why are people saying they have an anal personality right what freud is saying is that if somehow you do not go through this potty training stage in a balanced healthy way one of the bad results is that you may have what's called an anal retentive personality think about what retentive means to hold in it means your anus is tight okay <laughs> it means you're like constipated you're not pooping properly right and i'm sorry if you're eating breakfast or having a meal during this i should have warned you right and and if you think about what an anal person is now some people confuse this Or equate this with OCD like behaviors, obsessive compulsive disorder, like being anal means having to be very clean. Well, if you being organized, well that 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 kind of sort of is true, meaning that someone is very uptight about things, so they can't just have things laying around. They have to be organized and clean. But being uptight has another meaning. It means that they're not freely giving away their personality, right? They're only nice to people when they have to be. You see? They're holding that part in. So, they're not pleasant people to be around. Okay. So, think about someone who's constipated for a week, right? They're not pleasant to be around. Okay? They're, they're, um, so that's, that's called the uptype personality. They're anxious about things. My wife accuses me of being an anxious traveler. I worry about this. Did we lock that, right? And so maybe I have a somewhat anal personality, right? So, the opposite of that, what's the opposite of, um, of constipation that would be diarrhea sorry again if you're eating right so someone might have a diarrhea kind of personality where they're sort of all over the place right so you can be extremely uptight or you can be extremely like sort of uh, loose meaning that you just let everything go yeah you don't care about stuff you just you know your place is a mess right sort of figuratively like diarrhea right it's like a mess right again anal retentive means you're just very very uptight right you're very cheap You're not going to give money away. You're not going to pay more than you have to. Someone who has a diarrhea personality, they're just going to be always in debt. They can't hold on to their money. They spend on everything, you see? So ideally, you want to have a balance so you don't end up with an anal fixation. All right, now as we go through our puberty years, we hit the phallic stage. And this is where the erogenous zone is no longer the mouth, no longer the the anus, but is now... Our sexual organs right that kind of makes sense right if you think about well okay that's what happens when we reach puberty and all that right and so uh, when we reach this particular phase one of the main um, themes is that we have a particular fixation called the Oedipus okay Uh, fixation right Um, and what the Oedipus fixation is, is that Freud believes that in a heterosexual sense, boys have an attraction to moms and, mom, and girls. Uh, well, let me rephrase that the Oedipus complex. And girls suffer from the Electra complex, means that Oedipus complex boys have an attraction to mom. Electro-complex girls have an attraction to dad, right? And so let's think about it from the boys' point of view. What does this really mean? Is that um, if, if you think about how, you know, while you may not literally feel like you have the hots for your mom, okay, you have a sexual attraction to your mom, right, We that's socially unacceptable, right, because that's incest. Right? That's a very incestuous thing, right? But at a very young, younger age, okay, we're not talking about a 17-year-old, but maybe a 10-year-old uh, or even younger, you may see young children sort of play this out, that they desperately want mom's attention. And if mom is spending a lot of time with dad, then they're jealous of dad's attention to mom. Right? And Freud even goes so far as to say that little boys have an unconscious desire to want to kill off their fathers so they can be with their mothers, right? And that is what this conflict is all about. Now, if someone goes through the stage in a healthy way, again, I'm focusing on the boys, then what's going to happen is is that they will have a close relationship to mom. They'll be okay with their dads and their future spouses or relationship partners will somehow resemble their moms, but they don't have an overwhelming desire to, f- to find a woman to be their mom, right? To replace their mom. But if you think about In everyday life, don't we often say, and I've heard people say that, you know, uh, that, well, I love my wife because she has a lot of qualities that my mom has actually. Right. And so if you think about from another perspective, is that our our guardians and our parents, there are role models for what relationships should be like. Okay, now, of course, that could be good or bad. Right. So if we witness a lot of abuse, sometimes we find ourselves in abusive relationships later on. And so this is sort of Freud's take on it, but just using, of course, a very extreme kind of metaphor to explain this. So a lot of unhealthy adult relationships, Freud may go back and say, well, you have this complex here. If you're a woman, you have an complex. You're trying to find a dad, daddy figure to replace your dad because you have an overwhelming attraction to your father growing up, right? And that's why you end up finding uh, male partners that are not good for you. Or have the same personality traits as your father if they're verbally abusive, right? So Freud would, would make that kind of connection, okay? All right, so I'm sure a lot of you adult men out there are thinking, looking at their wives, going, do you resemble my mom in any way? Am I part of this Oedipus complex? All right, and so the next stage is the latency stage, and this is the, I think, the early teen years again, Um and if you think about kids in uh, primary school, in early teens, latency stage means that there's really no fixation going on here. There's no particular erogenous zone. It's kind of like, "Grandma, let's just take a break from all these hormones. And kids are focused on school. They're not really going out there, uh, you know chasing boys opposite sex relationships or adult style relationships and then the genital stage this is where we're um a little bit older uh in terms of hitting puberty so if i if i said the phallic stage is when we hit puberty that that was a mistake okay um so the puberty this is where we think of as the adult stage where our focus is on our physical genitals and um so obviously if we go through this stage in a very healthy way then we'll end up with fairly healthy sex life and relationship adult relationships but if somehow we have a fixation at the genital stage then perhaps someone may have some sort of sexual addiction and some sort of imbalance in some way so really the key idea to take away from here if you want to use this idea in your life in a useful way to so think about balance right whether we're parents raising young children or whether we're adults now reflecting on our lives, did we go through various stages in a balanced way? You know, What kind of problems do I have now as an adult right? that could be traced to these kinds of things? And again, this is more of a theoretical framework. It's not necessarily something we can prove that an alcoholic has an oral fixation. But this is the theoretical framework that Freud would use to analyze someone. Okay, all right. So let's move on. That's Freud. So hopefully that made sense. You got some key words out of that, in terms of fixation, the different stages, the oedipal electro electro complexes, right? The attraction to the opposite sex parent, and wanting to desire to replace or get rid of the same sex parent, right? Pretty twisted stuff. But again, if you look at it, you have to look at it through different lenses in a different way that uh, it can, can kind of make sense, right? Especially that anal personality, right? And the oral fixation, I think a lot of that people can relate to. All right. Now, Eric Erickson um, is also a psychoanalyst because he believes in the ego and the unconscious, right? Um, but he emphasizes that throughout our lifetime, we're trying to meet certain challenges. Yeah, we have certain goals we want to meet. And depending on our social environment and our relationships, that could affect each of these stages, okay? And uh, so let's move on and talk about what these eight stages are. Now, I'm not going to go through this in great detail. This, I think, you can study on your own. But if you look up Eric Erickson's psychosocial stages of development, <clears throat> I always thought his name was kind of interesting, that he would be named Eric Erickson. It's like someone being named Jack Jackson, um, Anyways, <laughs> that's just something I've always thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, or weird, okay. Alright, so trust versus mistrust. So if you look at the chart here, and, and if you don't have access to one, that's fine. But these eight stages range from uh, the first year of life, the second stage is 1 to 3, then 3 to 6, 7 to 11 years of age, and then the teenage years, adolescent years, 12 to 18. Then you have uh, the early adult years, 19 to 29 year, uh, years old. Then the adult years, 30 to 64, and then 65 plus, right? So it's split up into eight age groups. And let me just focus on a couple of these just as an example, okay? Well, each of these stages of life, we have a challenge that we must overcome, right? So we're trying to, the key phrase here, resolve conflicts. Kind of like video games, right? You have to meet certain challenges before you go to the next level. I'm speaking out of turn because I'm not really a gamer uh, ever since. I just never got into it. I don't know why. Maybe you all can introduce me to some games to ease this middle, middle-aged guy into and hopefully not get addicted to it, but you know, just use it as a diversion. At least maybe it'll improve my mental skills so I can remember um, people I'm trying to remember or TV shows I'm trying to remember offhand. It's really something that I used to do really well. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, oh, Frasier. There you go. The TV show Frasier. See, my Google search was a little delayed. So that's the show where he and his brother Miles, I think it was Miles, they play brothers, okay, where um, it's kind of an interesting dynamic, right? They're sort of uppity and they play psychoanalysts. So oftentimes you'll hear them throw around many Freudian concepts in their show. So I highly recommend it. It's, it's, it's a clean family show. It's a comedy Um, but you'll, you'll see a lot of hidden and not so hidden references to Freud, obviously, because that's the whole point of the show. Okay. Man, got that out of the way. Feel better now. Okay. So trust versus mistrust. This happens during infancy, right? So if you think about it, this is the major conflict, right? So as a parent raising a baby, you want to develop that trust. Okay. Okay so that means that when they're crying you you soothe them when they're hungry you feed them so now they may not be able to think in a complicated way but they know that oh there's someone there i can rely on okay someone always responds to me when i'm in need okay giving me nourishment or affection so then develop a sense of trust now the whole idea here is that if we go through the stage in a very healthy way then as an adult in our own relationships with friends, and close relationships, romantic relationships. We will have a healthy sense of trust of others, right? Now, if you went through that stage, even though you will claim you have no conscious memory of being a baby, but if you had uh, neglect of some kind, then it's possible, according to Erickson, yeah, according to Erikson, that as an adult, you'll have trouble trusting people, okay? All right. So let's talk about the teenage years, just to skip ahead. This is stage five, identity versus confusion, that kind of self-explanatory, isn't it? And if you think about what adolescents have to go through in their teen years, right, in those uh, middle school, high school years, and going to the next stage of college or going to the workforce and being independent, they're really trying to identify who they are. And that is why you see a lot of experimentation, um, uh, belong to certain social groups, changing the way they dress. Like my daughter, a huge part of her current identity at 17 is that she is a BTS army, right? I don't have to explain what that is. I think if you don't know, Google that, okay? Or DuckDuckGo, it. I don't use Google much anymore. And search for that. And this is basically a fandom, right, of a Korean K-pop band. Uh, the most popular band in the world. Sort of like the Beatles of the 1960s. That's how popular they are. In terms of their music and their fan following, right? Um, But the Beatles did it without social media, so now we have social media. And so this sort of came on suddenly, right? So those who have teenagers in the house, you can see these shifts happen. Huge personality shifts, change in appearance and so forth, right? So it's something to watch out for. But this is their attempt to push some boundaries, to seek out their identity and what their roles are in life. And so they may sway back and forth with having a certain identity, like, yeah, this is who I am, I am this, I am that, versus a state of confusion, right? And they may rock back and forth or have a, have a sort of a balance of the two, I guess. And then let's talk about older life. Well, during the, our main adult life, right, what, what do you think about we do most of the time? What's motivating us? Well, we want to be productive, we want to support our family, and that is called generativity, right? Having some sense of purpose in addition to being... Um, uh, a provider, for example, whether you're a man or a woman, right? So, how do you contribute to society? Are you a, a participating, a productive part of your family. And then the opposite of that is stagnation, right? Are you feeling stuck? Feeling like your life is going nowhere? Uh, you're in a dead end job. You're not really making the amount of money. You feel financially stuck, right? So, this 34 year span of being an adult in your 30s all the way through your early 60s, pre-retirement age, this is the main conflict. And I think a lot of us can can relate to this, right? It makes a lot of common sense that at this stage in our lives, this is what we're doing. So at 53, at the time of this recording, um, yeah, I've gone through a lot of this. I've thought about, well, do I need to switch careers? I want to maybe spend less time in front of a computer because I teach online and I'm in front of a screen all the time. Maybe I can go work at a national park and be outdoors, right? And uh, and have a chance to travel a bit, right? And so, do I want to do that? Okay. And right now we sort of have a a balance of that. We travel, slow travel the world, try to be as economical as possible. I teach online, so it gives us some flexibility. And at the time of this recording, we're still during the you know in the midst of the COVID nineteen pandemic, so we're really kind of trapped within the united states right that's how we feel i think for most people they feel like they're trapped inside their home we feel like we're trapped in the us so while we still have our camper van and we can drive around and go to different places even out of state but um, our true desire is to be overseas at least half the year and we can't do that and because there's mass unemployment around the world because of the pandemic suddenly i see my job as being very valuable and and that's why I'm making more podcasts, because I'm trying to improve myself and make my classes even better. So now i sudden more motivation and more interest in my courses. So that's my personal example of generativity during this stage. Now, the 65 plus stage, again, in Erickson's theory here, that's where we are. Stage eight, this is integrity versus despair. I know it sounds kind of sad, but this is where a person is having more reflection, trying to assess their life make sense of their life maybe they're retired and not working full-time so they have a little bit more time to think about it and they're reaching a certain stage where you know some of your peers are passing away of illnesses and, and you can definitely see that you don't have many years left okay and I see my father going through this because he's 81 and a half and almost 82 he is 82 in Asian years okay that's another story and he's extremely healthy Right. I mean, he can do he does Tai Chi. He teaches it to his friends. He can do certain flexible stretches that I can't do. You know, so he's he's really sharp. Okay. Other than a vision problem and had eye surgery. Right. He's physically perfect. Okay. No real problems. And he's a retired physicist. Right. So anytime he does have a physical ailment, he's online searching, reading, watching YouTube and he can tell you the benefits of certain vitamin or certain procedure. He's like suddenly a medical expert, right? And I'm sure that a lot of times listening to he and his friends talk, they talk about this sense of meaningfulness in life, right? And during the COVID pandemic, suddenly the lack of social connection, you know, that's something they look forward to. They look forward to traveling the world as a group of retired friends. That's been shut down. And so what do they do? So you see a lot more despair amongst this group. So even though they're economically, financially very well off, they've done very well in their lives, they wanted to work very hard and then at this time uh, enjoy their lives, right, While while they still can, while they're still ambulatory and healthy, but they're facing a lot of despair because of the pandemic. Okay, so that's Eric Erickson's psychosocial stages of development. Um, all right. Let's move on to shift gears a little bit and talk about cognitive aspect. In this, we're going to talk about the Swiss psychiatrist, oh psychologist, Jean Piaget. Okay. <clears throat> Cold coffee, nice. All right. It's a little too humid here. I wish I could turn on the AC, but it's going to be loud. All right. So let's keep going. Uh, this is my sweaty podcast. <laughs> okay. Um, so Piaget had a very positive view. I love his view of children and how they're developing. But his main idea that I think is important to understand is that oftentimes, you know, we as lay people look at children that we assume that at any age they should be conceptually being able to learn certain things. It's Like, why is my child not able to figure this out? You know, why is it a 10-year-old, I still, 10 years old, I still have to explain this to them? Oh, they're 12 now. Why can't they still, okay? So Piaget through his uh, work, discovered that there are just certain things mentally that a child cannot wrap their heads around until they mature into it, until they g- physically grow into it. Okay, So it doesn't mean, it's not a neuron count or any kind of thing like that. It's not something you do with the blood test. and then it, It's a stage theory, but it varies amongst us as individuals that suddenly we wake up one day and it's like, oh, I can solve this sort of puzzle that I couldn't do yesterday, right? And so he thinks of children as they develop in their activities that they're, they're little scientists, right? That's a, I think that's a really interesting and positive view of kids so that when there's a toddler in the house throwing spaghetti and you're just trying to scrape it off the ceiling, right? that instead of thinking um, I have an evil child that's what Freud would think by the way this kid who's fixated and is, who's the child of Satan okay um, who has animal instincts you know gone wrong think about it more positively like Piaget and uh, Piaget thinks of children as scientists the child just wanted to know how far can spaghetti fly and how much a ceiling can absorb spaghetti right it's an experiment They're developing their minds. So anytime your child is destroying their house, uh, in the old days, I used the example of uh, putting toast into a VCR. That's how old my podcasts were, believe it or not. But now I guess you have to use new examples. Let's say like um, uh, sticking a banana into a USB port. You know, whatever. Okay. (laughs) Oh, if you were Freud, you would think that was kind of sexual, but I didn't really mean it that way. Okay, so let's move on. So Piaget believes that a child develops schemata. that's a plural for schemes, okay. Um, and they're basically categories. So okay, this is a dog. that is a cat. okay. This is an adult, okay. And to help them understand the world, right. But you notice that with children and language, sometimes they miscategorize things, that's because they're still developing these schemata. And so what happens with these schemata over time is that they go through a couple processes and sometimes students get these two confused. One's called assimilation and one's called accommodation. You know, I think psychology is full full of terminologies that rhyme and sound too much alike and yet they mean the opposite sometimes. And I think if I were to rewrite psychology, I would just use terms that sometimes start with letter A and then the opposite one would start with letter Z, okay. You know, even apples and oranges is better than apples and snapples. You know, I mean, you know, you don't use terms that sound almost exactly like. So, what is assimilation? Well, this is where a new piece of information—they're learning something new by relating it to something they already know. Okay, so let's say you're taking sociology. Oh yeah, sociology kind of makes sense because I'm comparing it to psychology. So that's that's in a form of assimilation of the concepts of sociology, right? Now, accommodation is where you have a new experience and it changes your existing schemata. So maybe you learned about uh, industrial organizational psychology, right? And you didn't hear about this, this before and you realize that, oh, you know my job in my H human resources department, HR, they have a bunch of psychologists working there. I had no idea. That's called accommodation. Your concept of psychology your schemata of psychologists and what they do their careers suddenly has altered right you have to reshape that and that's called accommodation okay so again you have to use some memory mnemonics to kind of kind of make sense of assimilation or accommodation oh is that a cool breeze i need to open the window oh my mother-in-law is outside okay i can't open the window all right never mind all right so that's assimilation and accommodation now this is what piaget is most well known for is stages of cognitive development all right and again this is by age now if you're older than 12 then you're in the last stage okay called formal operational newborns to two-year-olds are in this stage called sensory motor stage now if you were to take lifespan class there are many more sub stages within sensory motors but we're in intro to psych right now at this level so let me try to just make sense of each of these stages for you So the sensory motor stage, think about what this word is made of. Sensor, okay, or senses and motor. So sensory, this is our senses, what we feel and touch and see and hear. And then motor is our movement, right? So if you think about what babies do to try to make sense of the world, aren't they just touching everything, right? Putting everything in their mouth, tasting everything, right? And throwing things around this is sensory motor right and this is their understanding of the world they're trying to learn of the world this way that's why we have all these very you know um, stimulating things to hang over a crib that that turn in circles that make sounds right and you notice that infants and toddlers they they never get tired of a sound no matter how annoying it is to adults right it seems to be a correlation that that the the greater annoyance to an adult is something they want to hear repeatedly right like the sound of those little hammers that make the squeaking sound right you know it just doesn't matter so and i'll you know so i remember going through this stage with our daughter and you know for her that not me okay and going through the toy section and trying to think of what toys to pick up and she really liked this little lawnmower kind of toy that has that bubble with the balls in it that pops the moment you push it right so it's and my wife and i looked at each other and thought mm, no okay. <laughs> not that one okay unless we're at a park or somewhere outdoors yes you can use that you can you can develop your brain using that but outside all right so that is the sensory motor stage now one example of the sensory motor stage that occurs is object permanence This is something that kicks in maybe nine months of age, and some researchers say even earlier, but the average is about nine. Um, A newer researcher claimed as early as three months, okay? So object permanence, and this is something we all as adults take for granted, is that we understand mentally that something still exists even though it becomes out of sight, right? So if we're driving down the road and you know there's a car behind you, then they change lanes, to pass you but you don't see them in your mirror they did not just disappear into thin air right the car is still there right Uh, a person walks out of the room you know that they're in the other room they didn't just disappear but think about why peekaboo is so exciting for infants and little toddlers in a stroller right where you hide your face behind your hands and then they suddenly squeal when they they're all happy when they see you that's because you are literally disappearing and reappearing so yes they're freaking out okay it's like why is he why did dad just disappear and all of a sudden he reappears out of nowhere and we observe that as giggles and laughter like they're amused but they're, you're probably traumatizing them okay that part i'm kidding okay they're probably just enjoying the stimulation of it um and that's why you can test them right you can have them play with the ball roll the ball under a couch and see if they're actually looking for it or trying to reach for it your dog might be but your infant or early toddler may not be they may just think oh well i'll play with something else the the ball literally doesn't exist okay so object permanence is something that kicks in again biologically naturally it's a mental skill that just kicks in okay all right now stranger anxiety is another example okay of uh and this is kind of a good thing. I remember that when our daughter was a baby and pre-walking stage, so it was within this age range, uh, we would have these large family gatherings and everybody wants to hold Emma, right? So we're passing her around and you can kind of see her whenever she's being passed to someone unfamiliar. She kind of gives us a glance like, is this person on the approved list of hugging, right? Uh, or if we encounter a stranger and we're pushing on a stroller, and we're having a talk with them. You can see her head tilting back and forth looking at the stranger, looking at us, looking at the stranger, looking at us, right? And then, you know, if we give sort of this approval, like it's okay, it's okay, then she kind of calms down, right? So that stranger anxiety is part of the sensory motor stage. All right, let's move into ages two through six. This is the pre-operational stage, right? Think of the word operational as logical, right? So pre-operational stage means they're pre-logical. It means that Within that age range, a ch- because of the child's brain development, they still cannot figure some things out. Okay, they are developing symbolic thinking, using words. Right, they're developing language. Right, uh, they understand that certain images relate to real things. Okay, they see a picture of a dog. They know that's not the dog. They know it's a picture of a dog. Okay, but they still lack some logical reasoning skills. Okay, so they're able to extend and pretend play. Right, a lot of kids like to do that. Um, but because of egocentrism, right, meaning that the world revolves around them, they see the world from only their point of view. I'm sure there's some adults who are still stuck in this stage, but for a two to six year old, that's called egocentric thinking, right? It means that they have a hard time thinking from another person's point of view, okay? Um. And uh, in in cognitive psychology, that's called theory of mind, right? Being able to understand that someone else has their own experience and you can empathize with that person. All right, so that's the preoperational stage, still limited in their thinking. From 7 to 11, suddenly they're in the concrete operational stage, okay? What that means is that they're able to do certain things mathematically, right? So they're mentally able to solve certain types of problems they weren't able to do before, not because of access to a math book or having a math tutor, but because of just their brain developing into that phase. And they're able to understand the principle of conservation. And I wonder if in the book, this graphic is uh, a typo. They wrote in conversation. I think they meant conservation, right? So what is that? Conservation is just this idea in physics that you take an object, and no matter how much you change the shape, that object, that mass or volume is still the same. So for example, if I were to pour a cup of coffee from this uh, mug of mine and pour it into a tall, skinny glass, I know that the same amount of liquid is in that glass, even though it just looks different. That's called the principle of conservation, right? And so from 7 to 11, they suddenly get it. And there's a very famous test. And there are a series of these tests you can do with children. I did this with my daughter early on. Back then, we didn't have cell phones and cell phone videos. So it's on tape somewhere. It was really cute. And unfortunately, when I did this the first time, the results came out as I expected. But then when I started taping, Emma would start to sort of rehearse her answer, so it sounded like I'm teaching her what to say instead of being spontaneous, anyway. So, if you have a uh, let's say a five, six, seven year old, right? So, right on that borderline age, give them this test take two cups of different shapes, pour water or milk or whatever into one of those cups, okay? And you can show them that. Um, Oh, sorry, let's start over. Have those two different... Have two cups that are the same, rather, okay? Pour the same amount in each cup and have them look at the cups and say, okay, are these two cups, they have the same amount of water. And little kids take those things seriously, right? They're like, yeah, they'll examine it for a while. they like, yeah, I think they're the same. And then you take a third cup that's of different shape, right? Whether it's tall and skinny, low and pudgy, no, okay, it doesn't matter. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm not fat-shaming. This is just the shape of a glass, you pour it into that glass, and then now you take that other glass, that original one, the second one, and this new one, and you put them side by side and say, okay, now I poured this water from here to there. Now let's look at these two glasses of water. Are they the same or are they a different amount of water? Right. Now you cannot leave them. Just make the question as basic as possible. And they will start to study this, right? If they're in the pre-operational stage, they still don't mentally understand the principle of conservation. What do you think they're going to do? They'll pick the water level that's the higher one and say that that cup has more water. Now, as a parent or as an older sibling or whatever, don't just assume that, oh my gosh, my little cousin's stupid. You know, No, no, don't ever think that. What it is is that that's their level of development. Right? Now, if you do the same test with a kid who now has the understanding of conservation, again, not through teaching, but just through mental growth, they will look at you and go, "Are you, you're kidding me, right? You're, you're really asking me that whether these two glasses of water have the same amount of water. And they'll storm out thinking, what do you think, I'm stupid? right?" So they go from not getting it to getting it. And you may not know what day that's going to be, right? But then once they get it, it's just sort of a no-brainer, right? And the reason that they could get it is that they have a skill, and it's not listed in this chart, called irre- called uh, reversibility, right? So in the pre-oper- preoperational stage, that child has irreversibility, meaning that they have a hard time mentally rewinding a series of events. So it's almost like they forgot. That the water in this second cup came from that water in the first cup They can only notice what's in the second cup Okay, Whereas the concrete operational child They know that well if you poured water from that cup It's the same water that exists in the second cup So it's the same amount And that's the kind of tone they'll, <laughs> they'll use Okay, So that's called reversibility Now also centration is at play right? Centration It's based on the word center. This belongs over here in the pre-operational stage. So irreversibility and centration, okay? They belong in the pre-operational. Centration means that when they solve problems, kids of that age only look at really one aspect of it at a time. They have a hard time juggling different contexts, okay? So they look at just the height of that. And you can do this uh, same test with some clay, right? Moldable clay like Play-Doh. My wife slipped one day many years ago and it called it Clay-Doh. I thought it was very cute. We still make fun of her to this day. Okay, so you take some Clay-Doh and you you mold it, you know, two balls in a certain size, and then, and then okay, don't go Freud here. Okay, so you have two of these clay balls, right? And you show them to a child and say, okay, are they the same size? Say yes, they're the same size. Then you take one of them and you literally in front of them There's no trick You pound the heck out of this one And make it like a pancake And then you say Okay, compared to this ball of Play-Doh And this pancake of Play-Doh Which one has more Play-Doh? And the pre-operational child will look at that pancake Because it takes up more space on the table And say, hey, there's more Play-Doh here That was magical, right? And so again That's due to the factors we just talked about so that's also a test of the principle of conservation, right? So whether it comes to doing mathematical equations or solving these sort of simple tests that we think of, and, and that's why, you know, younger children have a t- tough time with money, with coins, right? So again, in America, we have a dime, that's 10 cents, and a nickel is 5 cents, but the nickel is physically bigger than the dime, right? So you ask a younger child who's maybe 5 years old, which one of these is more money? The dime or the nickel. They will say the nickel because it's bigger. And that makes you wonder why they made the nickel <laughs> so big, right? Okay, so now we move from the, to the adolescent years, and now we're in the formal operational stage. That means that not only can we think logically and figure out certain types of problems, but now we have the addition of abstract reasoning and moral reasoning, more complicated moral reasoning. So an example of abstract versus concrete, right? So one thing you can ask someone who's maybe 10 years old that you think is in the concrete operational stage is ask them to define what love is. And they may use very concrete examples like love is holding hands, right? Uh, love is kissing, okay? Love is hugging. And then you ask a teenager what love is and they'll, they'll go into this big, deep, deep philosophical, oh, it's when our souls are connecting and, you know, uh, you know, we just see eye-to-eye eye on things and they complete my sentences and all that kind of crap, right? And so that is the, that is an example of abstract thinking, okay? And that is something we do as adults, okay? Uh, so we no longer have to think in this very visual, concrete way. So there you go. Those are the four stages of cognitive development. We start off by just touching and throwing things around, uh, tasting things. That's the sensory motor stage, right? Uh, we develop object permanence, luckily. Things still exist even though we don't see them. Then we're in this pre-operational stage. So uh, we develop language, we're able to do certain things, but we still can't solve certain logical problems just because our brain hasn't matured enough yet. We suffer from irreversibility. We can not It's like our rewind button is broken on a video player. We can't play things back. We suffer from centration. Now these are not disorders, okay? It's just a normal state of mind at that stage but we're developing language pretty good a lot of words then we ease into concrete operational we wake up one day and we understand that we pour water into different containers and it's the same amount it's amazing okay but we're still limited because we still see love as holding hands and then we graduate into the formal operational stage where suddenly we're philosophers okay and can think in abstract ways all right now another theory of development is kohlberg's theory of moral development this is from Lawrence Kohlberg right and you can see this really in our children and as adults in terms of how someone gives reasons and motivations for why they make certain choices in terms of uh, good or bad so let's look at these three levels the first level is called pre-conventional morality right so this is the sense of well I'm only going to do certain things Because I'm avoiding direct punishment Okay So think about seatbelt laws When you're driving a car Right Some people put them on Because they think it's going to keep them safe Some people put them on Because they just want to obey the law uh, Or not be shunned by people in the car It's like people are going to yell at you Right So you want to be part of the group And then there's a a very simplest level That I don't want to get a ticket That is the only reason if they're driving on a country road and they don't know cops are around, this is the kind of person who does not wear a seatbelt. They don't see the, so it's really driven by self-interests, okay? I'm only going by the rules because I'm trying to avoid punishment, okay? I don't want to get caught. It's the only reason I'm not shoplifting today is because there's a camera in the shop. If that camera was not there, I would be taking this Twinkie home with me in my pocket, okay? now level two is conventional morality conventional morality means that uh, my behavior is driven by social approval okay so I'm going to obey authority love and I'm going to conform because that's the law that's the that's the law and that's pretty much simply it okay uh, I'm not gonna steal because it's against the law there's no if ands or buts about it okay so um, if, you, if we go into the post-conventional morality stage, right? So now it's a little bit more philosophical, right? So is it the right thing to do? Is it the wrong thing to do? Not just legally, but at a, at a different sort of moral ethical level. So this is where we're driven by a sense of ethics and internal moral principles, Okay, um, for example, uh, cheating on exams, right, is really not that hard, I should tell you honestly, to cheat on online tests. Now, there's smart cheaters and not-so-smart cheaters, right, um, but in the end, thinking from level three, post-conventional morality, all forms of cheating is wrong, and you know why, um, because you're cheating yourself, you're paying tuition for a course, and you're not really learning anything. You're just paying to get credits, because by cheating, you don't learn the principles of the course, you don't gain the educational value of it. You're getting credits so you can get through school, so you can go to work and get a credential, right? So, in that in that sense, you know, that person cheating. Um, is is really a level one kind of behavior, right? Driven by self interest. I just need the credits and I'm getting out of here, All right? Um, so they're not they're not really driven by a, a sense of uh, conventional morality, um, or a sense of a higher level of doing the right thing, which is level three. Okay. All right. So that's Mulberg. Now uh, here I'm going to try to and again this um, podcast. Uh, Lectures lasting quite a long time because we had to go through some of the major theories there. And these stages of development. So in a typical lifespan textbook, what you're going to see is that there are going to be these stages, and sometimes broken down into even more groups. So we have the prenatal stage as the stages of pregnancy, infancy through childhood. And oftentimes the childhood phase is split up into two different groups. So these are the groups. These are age ranges, stages of our life adolescence right a lot of changes happening there then we have emerging or young adulthood and then we reach adulthood okay um, and sometimes there's adulthood is split up into middle and later adulthood so if you look at a lifespan textbook these are the chapter segments you'll see right? or sections and then within that you'll see a lot of the theories of development interspersed throughout these chapters you know growth about biological growth about cognitive changes and so forth okay all right, so let me just breeze through some of these stages just to give you an example, right? So, for example, during the stages of pregnancy, instead of using the term trimester, um, it's typical for a lifespan psychology course and biological psychology course to use terms uh, such as these, these three terms. First of all, there's a germinal stage, right? So this is where um, the egg becomes fertilized and uh so this is just the first couple of weeks. So a person may be pregnant and not even know it during the germinal stage, most likely. Just the first couple of weeks. And now the c- fertilized egg is, has a name called the zygote. So the germinal stage in some textbooks is called the zygotic stage. So the zygote is going to graduate in week three, and now it's called an embryo. Right. So now we're in the embryonic stage through week eight. Weeks three through eight. So that's the second month of pregnancy, okay? So all of this is within the first trimester normally, right? If we're thinking about weeks. So already we're in two, two of the three stages, right? So the longest stage has to do with the fetal stage. That's that's the Now from an embryo, we graduate, we get another piece of paper, and now say, like, oh, my name is a fetus, okay? Now this embryonic stage is actually very important because... A lot of things can happen in a negative sense during the embryonic stage. A lot of uh, vital growth is happening. So if that's interfered with, then birth defects could happen, as well as in the fetal stage, okay? So it's important to take note of teratogens. And this is almost anything in our environment or something someone's ingesting that could cause harm to the embryo or fetus, right? So some obvious ones that we know of. So it's basically a list of things to avoid during pregnancy. Alcohol, smoking, drugs, right? Those are pretty obvious ones. And some of the less obvious ones have to do with exposures to chemicals. So if uh, someone in the household was doing yard work and handling fertilizers, right? They bring the clothing into the laundry hamper. If the pregnant person is the one doing laundry, they're exposed to those chemicals indirectly, right? Uh, like secondhand smoke, or that's actually called thirdhand smoke. So if uh, the residue of a cigarettes is on the clothing, right, and then the person is absorbing it or breathing it through the clothes that they're handling, that's thirdhand. Secondhand smoke means you're breathing someone's uh, uh, cigarette smoke that they're exhaling. Right? That's secondhand smoke. Okay, so that's very, very important. Uh, during our last visit to Taiwan, we saw a lot of signs in public talking about second and thirdhand cigarette smoke, which is pretty interesting. Right, so obviously the hard drugs, but even prescription drugs or over-the-counter drugs, someone has to be careful about ingesting. So teratogens is not only the responsibility of the pregnant person, but it's also responsibility of the partner and people in the household. So just bec- and because you don't want to expose the pregnant person to any of these things. So I would encourage the partner in the household to, you know, don't smoke in the house, don't drink in the house, you know, those things that you normally would do or normally would share with your partner, just don't have them around uh, as either temptations or as an indirect way of that person ex- being exposed to it, right? And also, uh, sexually transmitted diseases are call, are also part of uh, teratogens because uh, HIV, other kinds of sexually transmitted uh, viruses can be transmitted from... Uh, mother's blood to the fetus okay Uh, sometimes the odds are very small okay especially if someone's under HIV treatment then the likelihood is small that the newborn will have HIV in their blood but again if they're if they don't know and not being treated then it's more probable okay now if we talk about that's the stages of pregnancy okay in 10 minutes okay so now if we talk about the newborn stage of development um, one of the things to pay attention to is that newborns have a lot of reflexes, right? These are just automatic physical reactions that, um, that a newborn is using to respond to their environment, okay? And some of these you can just test, okay? Obviously, they have the sucking reflex. it's just something they do. It doesn't even have to be food. It could be any object. It could be your finger, right? They're going to suck on it. It's just a reflex. They have no control over that. It's just what they do. They also grasp things. That's the grasping reflex. Some people confuse the sucking reflex with the rooting reflex, right? The rooting reflex has to do with when something touches the newborn's cheek, they turn, right? Well, usually it means that they're turning to suck and to eat right on a bottle or breast or nipple. Well, that's not that's a combination of rooting that leads to sucking. So some people think the rooting reflex is the sucking reflex. So they're actually quite, they're different. They're different parts. Then the moral reflex um, is, and you can see videos on this. I wouldn't do this at home with your baby, but is where the baby spreads their arms out, right? When they have this sudden sensation that they might be falling, okay? So you see videos of this in a laboratory where they're safely holding an infant, and then suddenly sort of like, Almost act as if they're being dropped, right? Just a few inches, and then they see the arms fling out. Okay, I think as adults we kind of still do that, right? When we think we're falling, our arms just flail out. That's called the moral reflex. M-O-R-O. Okay. All right. So those, that's really what I want to cover there, just to be brief. Now, in the category of psychosocial attachment, uh, sorry, psychosocial development, attachment theory is very important in the early stages, and and this is a A common discussion item I use for my classes to talk about uh, attachment and what your beliefs are but the first couple years of life the parent or caregiver and infant attachment creates an emotional bond right and this has to do with how we respond to our infants in need if we're consistent just like Erickson said right it produces trust right so in this theory uh, by the attachment theories they believe it develops the same kind of bond and then this bond can lead to a healthier sense of their mentality growing up and have healthier relationships later on, okay? So we want a healthy attachment. So some of the famous researchers in the field are Harry Harlow, that you may have heard about, John Bowlby, and Mary Ainsworth. And we'll talk about these three people real briefly. So Harlow has to do, uh, a very older researcher back in the day where he did uh, experiments with monkeys and tried to see how baby monkeys would respond to having a fake uh, uh, mother uh, in the cage, okay? Uh, Would they just see it as an inanimate object? Would they try to bond with it, right? And they, they sort of had a furry texture and a fake head, right? And they found that these separated newborn monkeys, which may be an unethical thing to do, they separated from their mothers and they were presented with two surrogate mothers, right? So one made out of wire mesh could actually dispense milk. One made out of cloth, but did not dispense milk. Okay? They spent time in different groups. Right? And so what's interesting was the monkeys actually spent time clinging to the cloth monkey like for comfort, but went to the wire monkey for food. Right? Um, and so the conclusion was that uh, maybe there is something to this sense of comfort and security right that is more than just about feeding that they actually require this sense of physical comfort and they interpret that as being attachment now the research named Bowlby actually furthered this idea and defined attachment as this affection or emotional bond the infant forms with the mother okay back in the day because the mother was a primary caregiver and it's more or less universal but it's not only the mother this can happen and the idea is that the parent represents a sense of security they're a secure base right and you see this at playgrounds and now don't observe playgrounds in a creepy way right but next time you just happen to be near one and especially with the little tiny kids you'll see that they the ones with healthy secure secure attachment with the parent is that they would like to hang around the parents but they feel safe enough to explore the playground and then after a certain amount of time come back and check in with the parent it's like oh I need to return to my secure base to recharge my sense of security okay I'm recharged I feel comfortable. Let me go explore the slide, okay, in the playground. And so this is a sense of, through observation, a sense of secure attachment, okay? And how do you create this healthy attachment? Well, a caregiver has to be responsive to the child's needs, right? So no neglect. And this is a matter of developing consistency, right? There's no different than being consistent as an adult, right, is to be responsive. If if as an instructor... um, I vary in the amount of intensity and consistency and caring in my language and frequency of emails, right? Then the students would have a different sort of um, level of respect for me, right? If I respond an email right away with a very warm language and make it really easy for them to ask me questions, then that gives a different vibe than if I were to answer an email very late and very short uh, and a very sort of uh, cold language right so it's about consistency in how one engages with an infant and they have to sort of spend time together right have mutually enjoyable interactions so dr ainsworth mary ainsworth and it was kind of interesting when i was in grad school i had a professor named mary armsworth has nothing to do with anything but you know just throw it out there okay so mary ainsworth was the one who created the strange situation test that's easy to go online and look on YouTube for videos of this is where typically moms use in research and their infants they volunteered to be in the study and so they have a room where there's lots of toys and initially the mom and the infant and this is of all backgrounds okay uh, different kinds of they didn't pre-screen them to have certain qualities okay but they would interview them and 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 find out what kind of relationships and behaviors they're having at home usually and then they bring right, them right. into the lab. And the, as as rehearsed, the mom would leave the room. And, of course, you know, they, they observe through a one-way window how it, the toddler or the baby responds, right? And then the mom comes back. And also, when a stranger enters the room, it's usually a teaching assistant, research assistant, would come in, sit in the room, not really do anything in particular but just be in the room. And then mom leaves the room. How does the infant react uh, when... They're left, the, when they're secure base, their mom leaves the room and they're in the room with a stranger, right? So through these different patterns, based on this uh, scenario I described, Mary Ainsworth came up with, based on the patterns of what she saw, four types of attachment, okay? First, there were three styles, and then they added a fourth later. So this is secure, avoidant, resistant, and disorganized, Okay? so a secure attachment obviously is the one you want to try to achieve this is where they observe that the child uses the parent as a secure base to explore they get upset when mom leaves so that's a normal thing okay when child is up sometimes the parents at home are thinking oh i leave my child and they're crying well i must not have raised them right no that's actually a good sign especially when they're very comforted when you come back okay So at home, when caregivers are very consistent and sensitive to their needs, this is the end result and the pattern they see in the lab, okay? Type 2, avoidant, right? This is where the infant in that scenario doesn't seem very responsive to the parent, does not seem to come back to the parent as a secure base, and doesn't react one way or another when the parent leaves the room, right? The mother returns, they don't really seem that excited, okay? They don't really see them as a secure base. Okay? And this is an end result of households where the caregivers tend to be uh, lacking attention to the needs of the infant. That's called the avoidant attachment. Now, resistant attachment is interesting because they're, they're also kind of clingy. But then when mothers try to interact with them, they would reject them and push them away. right? They're not really into exploring the toys in the room they're very more so disturbed and angry when mom leaves but then they're very difficult to comfort when mom comes back so this is called resistant attachment okay and this is also common when the caregiver is not very consistent with the level of response now the disorganized kind of uh, attachment is where there's very difficult to see uh, a consistent pattern right They may behave oddly when mother leaves, right? They either freeze or they run around erratically. They try to run away when mom comes back. So it doesn't quite fit into the other three. And this is seen and correlated where there's abuse in the household. Okay? And so these are the four different types of attachments seen by Mary Ainsworth. Okay? All right, now, parenting styles is also covered in lifespan psychology. And this, I think, one can easily relate to and makes for a good discussion topic. So parenting styles are different patterns that, you know, a parent would engage in, whether it's a single parent or a couple. So let's talk about these. And now, again, a couple of these sound kind of similar, but it's really important to know which one is which. Authoritative style is the ideal one. Okay, authoritative. And this is where parents have rules, right? They're very consistent with the rules. They're affectionate. And they also very much take into a child's point of view and they listen. They, they want their children's input, right? So it's a very fair kind of democratic, semi-democratic style of parenting. Now the authoritarian, which sounds a lot like authoritative and sometimes students get them confused, but authoritarian is like a dictator, right? So the parents just want obedience. Just do what I tell you to do. Don't question it, Right. There's not a lot of back and forth. They're very stiff and rigid with those rules. And they're not exactly the warm, fuzzy type. Okay, And so it's basically a management style. okay, Authoritarian style of parent. So that is less ideal. Then you have the permissive style of parenting. Where parents don't seem to have a lot of rules. And they don't really use a lot of punishment. Okay, It's very permissive of what the kids are doing. Then... And usually the top three are the ones that uh, bombrained the researcher, developed. But then now you have the fourth one called the uninvolved style. So the parents just don't seem to care much, okay? And they're neglectful, and they really don't respond to the child's needs, and they don't really set any demands and rules around the house. So it's sort of a extreme permissive style, okay, where... Uh, sometimes permissive style they're very affectionate actually and it's not really included in this chart right? so the sort of warm fuzzy ties they want to be their child's friend right they're not really taking on the role of a parent by setting boundaries okay setting limits and setting rules and consequences so that's why they don't punish much okay and that's more the permissive style but the uninvolved style goes a step further and just being very neglectful and not very affectionate at all. So if you want to differentiate between permissive and uninvolved, the uninvolved is just you know a step beyond uh, in terms of that. So perhaps you can reflect back on your own parenting style and and maybe uh, your parents or guardians parenting style. Now as we move through these stages of life, now let's look at the adolescence, right? And the adolescent years are definitely very challenging as usually, Most of the data and concepts and pages in a textbook involve the adolescent phase, right? So obviously you have the physical development where puberty hits, right? And so there's a maturing of the sexual glands. Um, Certain uh, secondary sexual characteristics develop. Um, Now, primary and secondary sexual characteristics, um, these are often confused, but basically... Secondary sexual characteristics exist in boys and girls, okay, but sometimes we just, but they're more often found in one or the other, such as the development of hips and breasts in girls or facial hair and the voice change in boys, right? Um, So if we're talking about the sexual glands themselves, right, the sexual parts, that's what we normally refer to as the primary sex characteristics, those are the parts that we can see visually that differentiate male versus female. But then these other things that develop, such as the length of one's hair, uh, the shape of one's body, facial hair. Now, we know there are females with facial hair, so this is not 100% true. Uh, my sisters, for example, well, should I go there? Um, they actually have hairier legs than I do. I know it's kind of weird, okay? Um, but they always were jealous, like, man, I wish I had your legs. I wouldn't have to shave all the time. So I know, okay? Too much information. Okay, And so uh, when it comes to this section of lifespan psychology, there are terminologies like menarche and spermarchy. Okay, I always thought these would make great pet names. Uh, Not really. Okay, don't do that. Um, But this is the beginning of the menstrual periods for girls and the first ejaculation for boys, spermarchy. Okay, menarche is when uh, a female person their first menstrual period usually around 12 to 13 again it depends okay Um, it depends on the cultural environment depends on diet depends on other types of factors right and there are growth spurts that exist in boys and girls right Um, statistically speaking girls reach their adult height by 16 don't tell my daughter that and boys reach their adult height by the age of 17 but then again okay there's variety there there's some variation or in statistics, we call it variance. Now, another thing to, to keep in mind, especially when you have teenagers in the home, is that a lot of their behaviors really have to do, as if we go on, go back to Piaget's thinking, has to do with their biological development. So if you think about that the in these late teen years into the early 20s even, the development of the frontal lobe is still, still in process, in progress, right? And think about what the frontal lobe is responsible for. Judgment, impulse control, and planning. Think about what most teens are bad at. Judgment, impulse control, and planning, right? So it's not as if the the teen is doing a lot of these reckless things on purpose. But you'll see that those reckless type things tend to decrease over the years, right? Um, Because of the development of the frontal lobe. All right, and cognitive development over the years in this stage, talking about teenagers, right? So if you refer back to Piaget, more logical thinking skills, um, formal operational hypothetical problems, okay, knowing how to design and plan things, okay, Uh, increase in mental capacity, right, Um, and improvement on existing skills. So a lot of things are happening during these teen years. And also... During these early years in adolescence, a theory of mind, and this is also called cognitive empathy, right? is the ability to take on the perspective of another person and feel concerned for someone else. So this will increase during adolescence. I remember when we we're living in Thailand, one of Emma's friends in primary school fell and hurt her chin. It was bleeding, bleeding quite a bit Had a bad cut. And I remember, I remember Emma being just so upset. Not so much that she was traumatized by the sight of blood, but she was just so empathetic and towards her friend who fell, you know, thinking, oh, she must be in so much pain. And it was really interesting to see how much empathy she had for a classmate, which was kind of a good thing to see. All right. Now, if we talk about the emerging adulthood, just spend a couple minutes here. This is, uh, you know, from 18, right out of adolescence to the mid-20s. This is a stage of development that's added to a lot of these lifespan textbooks. And the reason this is added is because actually, um, and not included in the so-called adulthood phase, because in a lot of societies that have become industrialized and modernized, um, Those later adulthood stages in life are delayed right Um, marriage um, careers and so forth spending more time in school delaying having children so in a sense it's almost like an extension of adolescence but we don't want to call it adolescence so we call it emerging adulthood right sort of this sense that they're not completely separated yet they're still starting what we normally think of as adulthood just at a later stage so if we think about adulthood now it's technically defined as being in the mid 20s all the way through early 60s okay Um, and and oftentimes in these lifespan textbooks is split up from early adulthood to middle to late adulthood which is the elderly 60 plus right and uh, a lot of physical developments happening here obviously in terms of our vision our skin some sort of physical decline, uh, muscle mass, and so forth, okay? But it's not all bad news, okay? It's not all bad news. Um, Cognitive development, let's talk about that. A couple terms that you should know has to do with our types of intelligence. Um, There's crystallized intelligence and fluid intelligence, right? So crystallized intelligence is our ability to remember facts and information, right? Learn specific skills. So think of the word crystallized. They become very solid, Right, Uh, very very solid and stable types of knowledge. For example, Uh, gathered through life experience, through reading, through life experience. Then there's fluid intelligence, right? And this is our um, ability to process information, to reason, right? So it's not about a specific fact or specific skill, but it's our memory skills, reasoning skills processing information and problem-solving right that's fluid intelligence so there's factual information and skills that's crystallized then there's fluid intelligence right okay and uh, and in adulthood and later adulthood you'll see that fluid intelligence is what tends to decline uh, over the years right uh, whereas crystallized intelligence t- tends to stay steady or improves over our lifetime through middle adulthood. All right, so let's talk about psychosocial development. I think um, so a lot of the research is showing that some of the most important things about being happy is our social relationships, right? Having buddies, having uh, people to connect with. Right? And sometimes it may just be one person. It doesn't have to be a lot of people. And depending on one's personality, some people may enjoy being alone, right? Whereas they've been with other people their entire lives. So it depends on the individual. But a lot of research is showing that some of the keys to happiness and long life has to do with either a stable marriage, um, having kids, and having these stable relationships with others. Okay. Um, Let's see here. And one of the last things we'll cover here today, thank goodness we're coming to an end, is Death and Dying. Yeah, So we'll end on a cheerful note here. And uh, a lot of these textbooks do cover Elizabeth Kubler-Ross from the 1960s and her stages of grief. And again, you'll see this played out in a lot of different comedy shows. I remember there was an episode of Friends, again, dating myself, that you know, had characters go through all these stages, as well as Frazier, of course. Um, I don't know how I forgot the show Frazier. That was actually a nickname my friend gave me during college. Um, used to call me Frazier Trong just because I was a psychology major. Yeah, predictable, right? All right. So these stages have to be looked at um, from a different point of view. That is, originally Kubler-Ross thought that we went through all five of these stages when we're experiencing grief of some kind, right, and how we view death. But... This theory becomes more useful if you think about it more flexibly—that people can experience these different stages at different times and may not go through all the stages. And so, if, so it can be useful in that respect if you look at it from a modern point of view that uh, individuals, you know, are not confined to this theory in a tunnel going in sequence, but but there are five different circles that we might jump into at any given time, right? So these five stages and and you could not just they may not just deal with grief right it could be stages of shock uh st- you know the the reaction we get when we're diagnosed with the with an illness okay so you can think of many different incidences in life beyond grief and dying that this might apply to so the first one is not den- denial right and this one actually is very freudian right it's a freudian concept that um because it is so stressful and overwhelming to conceptualize and think about, we just push it out of our consciousness. And that's a very Freudian idea. We deny that this did not happen, right? So it could be a very famous person who passed away or something shocking that happened like 9-11. Um, the first reaction was, oh, denial. Like, that, that can't be real, right? So you hear a lot of people use that kind of phrase, Um, And then there's anger, stage 2 So once the denial wears off, we get very angry It's like, how can this happen? Uh, You know, how can my mother have cancer? How can, you know, whatever that situation might be A lot of angry outbursts But then again, you know, we're all individuals So you may encounter people yourself That maybe you never went through the anger phase You went through denial, then you go straight to bargaining Which is stage 3, where, uh, for example A person faced with a terminal illness They'll start saying things to the doctor Like, I'll do anything you know, things that I never would have considered. Um, I'll, I'll bargain with God, my God, so to speak, to I'll be a better person and do this in exchange for more years. You know, so this is the bargaining process. Sometimes the bargaining is with their physician, right, or with family members. Then stage four is depression. Uh, this is kind of an obvious one where one feels like they lose a sense of hope to the situation. And then stage five is acceptance, right, where more or less the person's at peace with what happened okay with um the circumstance and again Kubler-Ross initially theorized that everyone goes through these stages in order but um, today in our modern lens the way we can sort of make use of this theory without throwing it entirely out is to identify these five stages at any given time that a person may be experiencing right um now in terms of the actual ceremonies of death right it all depends on culture i think all of you recognize this some people some are very somber types of ceremonies some are celebrations of life right the act of cremation versus burial is oftentimes very much cultural and religious based when my grandmother passed away um this is back in 2008 yeah and uh, she suffered from Alzheimer's for about eight years, 10 years. And we went to the funeral all the way from Texas to Taiwan. And I had to take a couple weeks. And my employer and some people were questioning why do you need to take a couple weeks for your grandmother's funeral? You know, some people don't even take time off for the grandmother's funeral. But this is a very cultural thing. Being a grandmother on my father's side, um, there's an emphasis on family name. So being the oldest grandson, grandchild of this grandmother that it was important for me to be part of the ceremony and the ceremony the grieving process and took over a week right and it was a lot of burning of you may have seen this have you have seen this in uh, uh some videos of china and taiwan is that in taoist culture uh, where they they um, worship ancestry in a sense right so every household has uh, a room, an ancestral room, to pay respects to. And so you see a lot of old portraits and different kinds of um, different types of statues of different gods, uh, different spirits. That you burn incense and you do what's called in Mandarin bai bye, right? Paying respect at different times of the year, and you offer food and fruit. So whatever is offered is being sent to the ancestors. Now, when my grandmother died, they actually built a paper mansion on stilts, right? It's all flammable, right? And there's simulated money, so you throw it all over the place. And it's made out of a special material. And in Taiwan, during certain times of the year, there would be air pollution. And so now they've reduced it and said that, you know what? You don't have to burn this big stack of money for your ancestor. It's okay to burn this. And oftentimes they burn it and, you know, as a way to symbolize good luck for a new business. Right. But in terms of grieving process, that's what happened. We walked around in a circle holding a piece of yarn or, or string and we started chanting things like, you know, about our grandmother, certain phrases. It almost felt cult like, but it's not. OK, it's just a tradition. And then we would set the whole thing on fire. And so there's a little Mercedes and a scooter and a big screen TV and that little paper house it was all kind of cute. And whatever gets burned gets sent to them, to wherever they are, right? And so they can use it. So that's why periodically, during memorial-type occasions, once a year, there is the cleaning of the gravesite, And so it's common to leave it messy. And then that one time a year, you bring all your family and start cutting the cutting the weeds and sweeping, right? So it's a normal thing to see very unkept graveyards. And then once a year, it's cleaned out and offered fruit, and you burn incense, and you burn the money, the fake money. Don't tell the ancestors that, okay? It's, it's money that's being transferred to them. So it's kind of like a, like an ancient ATM machine, okay? Uh, or Zelle, okay? <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm losing it. It's getting hot in here in my uh, mobile recording studio. Okay, if you have any questions, reach out to me. If you're listening to this on a podcast, you can find me on Twitter at JackBTeaching. And I hope you got a lot out of the, this uh, extended lecture about Lifespan and development. You can see there are many theories, psychological principles at work uh, covering our entire lifespan. Okay. And this is called the lifespan perspective. Thanks, and I'll see you in a future podcast.